Today we're actually going to conclude our series, which has been looking at Luke chapters 4 through to 9. And uh, we've called the series The Year of the Lord's Favour. And really that's based out of Jesus' opening sermon in his ministry um, in Luke chapter 4. So we're going to conclude the series today. And so as we do that, I really just picking up really the theme of, of worship this morning. I want Jesus to fill our vision. So um, if you've got your Bibles with you, it'd be great if you could turn to Luke chapter 9. It's quite a long passage that we're going to be looking at today. So I'm actually going to be reading it out over the course of of the sermon um, rather than all in one chunk. But I'm going to begin by reading the first few verses. So Luke chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 18 through to 20. Actually, before I do that, I think I'd really like to pray. So uh, let's do that because we all need the Holy Spirit's help to understand scripture. So uh, Jesus as we've just enjoyed being amazed at you, as we've just received your peace, as we've just focused on your faithfulness, we now ask that you would open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to your word this morning. As we look at these precious, precious stories of our Saviour, would you stir our hearts once again to follow in your footsteps? Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Luke chapter 9, verses 18, and I'll start reading there. And it happened that while Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, Well, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? I think that the Gospels ask us a single big question. And that is, who is Jesus? I just want you to think for a moment about how you would answer that question. Who is Jesus? You might want to say it out loud. If you're on your own, say it out loud. If you're with other people, say it out loud and then listen to what they're saying. But... Who is Jesus? What comes into your mind? How would you answer that question? Yeah, I'm pausing so you can actually do that out loud. That's, uh, it's not I've just lost my place in my notes. Also, I could pause for an awfully long time here because there's a lot of answers to that question. But really, it's the key question in this life, I would argue. If we get this answer right, then everything else follows. The meaning and purpose of life is revealed to us if we know who Jesus is. The eternal destination of our souls is certain if we know who Jesus is. And our priorities for living will become clear if we know who Jesus is. And I believe that in today's passage, there's some real, genuine, good answers to that question, who is Jesus? So the story so far is that after months of Jesus demonstrating the kingdom, preaching the good news to the poor, proclaiming the year of the favour of the Lord, then, uh, and he's been healing all sorts of people and interacting with them, and then he says to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? 
And quickly on the heels of that comes the far more searching question. But who do you say that I am? You see, there's no escape, actually, from that laser like question of Jesus. Hiding behind the reported views of others, oh, he's Elijah and John the Baptist. That isn't allowed for very long. Quite quickly, it comes down to your answer to this central question. Who is Jesus? And so what we will see through the rest of uh, this passage is a range of answers to that question. Some big revelations to this biggest of questions. So we'll start with Simon Peter in verse 20, often the first to speak. um, And here he is. So in verse 20, he says, "Um, who do you say I am? Jesus asked. And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. You see, the other people had said John the Baptist, the great baptizer, or Elijah, or the prophets from of old. All impressive people, but all fall short of who Jesus really is. And Simon Peter says, well, You're the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who will save, the one who we're expecting to arrive at some point and the one who will fulfill all that has been said and written. That's who you are, Jesus. Quite an insight from Simon Peter. And uh, Jesus then responds with a bit of insight of his own. And so I'll read a, a bigger chunk now, verses 21 through to 27. But Jesus warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to lose his, sorry, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they've seen the kingdom of God. Jesus describes himself as the son of man. In answer to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus says, I'm the son of man. He actually does it twice in nine days in this account. So verse 22, he says it. And then in verse 44, he says, let these words sink into your ears for the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, the Son of Man is a character described in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Look it up. Chapter 7. Incredible vision. But the Son of Man is this glorious figure who appears and presented to the Ancient of Days, who is God. And the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man dominion, an authority, and an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus says, that's me. The son of man, that's me. That in itself is reasonably shocking. And you can see the kind of echoes of glory when it says the son of man will come in glory, the glory of the father and the holy angels in verse 26. 
there's these echoes of glory around this son of man figure. But alongside that, we note that there's a change in emphasis. Jesus trying to prepare his disciples for his suffering, for his death and for his resurrection. Verse 22, the son of man, this glorious figure, will suffer many things. Be rejected by elders, chief priests and scribes, the very religious leaders of the Jewish people who were meant to welcome in the the Messiah, the anointed one. And instead, he will be rejected, killed and raised on the third day. And in verse 44, it says he's the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That's a way of describing the Gentiles delivered over, given over. And we've just seen that story. The Jews want to crucify Jesus. The Romans actually do crucify Jesus. So in answer to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus says, I'm the son of man, a glorious figure. But things will not pan out in quite the way you expect. So the people have a view of Jesus. So does Simon people. So does Jesus. What does God say? Well, the next bit reveals that. This is something called the transfiguration. So again, a a few verses which I'll read from verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Does this remind you of the glorious son of man figure? And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. And uh, when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realising what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. (laughs) So Jesus appears in this transfiguration. He's, He's changed. He's glorious. And he appears alongside Moses and Elijah. Well, why? What does that mean? Well, I've tried to think of some analogies. So, If in our day, Jesus were to appear, say, alongside Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King, you'd kind of think, well, he's standing alongside people who are standing up for the rights of other people, the oppressed, standing against injustice. So he'd kind of be bracketed with those people. Or maybe if Jesus appeared alongside, say, Einstein and Marie Curie, you'd think, well, he must rank alongside some of the greatest scientific minds who've ever lived. Or maybe if Jesus appeared alongside Pele and Muhammad Ali, you'd think, wow, he must be one of the greatest sports people of all time. Or if he appeared alongside Beethoven and Mozart and the Beatles and S Club Seven, you'd say, well, he must be one of the greatest musicians of all time. 
But the fact is, he doesn't appear any of those, and we can't therefore interpret it in the way we might in our culture. But he appears alongside Moses and Elijah. Icons of Israelite history. Giants in their field. Moses, the great lawgiver. The one who redeems the people out of slavery and brings them into the promised land. Well, to the edge of the promised land. Let's not get into the detail. And Elijah, the great prophet, who heads up the list of prophets. Appearing with them, identifies Jesus with them, with the continuity and fulfilment of the work of the law and the prophets. That's impressive. Jesus, the fulfilment of the law and prophets. But then even more than that, God comes and he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Wow. Not only is Jesus designated as fulfilling the law and the prophets, but he's the very son of God. Who is Jesus? The son of God, the chosen one of God. And then we see Jesus come down the mountain. And so in verse 37, it says, On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I put up with you and be with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him into the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. The man calls Jesus teacher. Who is Jesus? He's the teacher. But actually the man knows that he's far more than that because he asks his son, he asks Jesus to heal his son. He knows that Jesus isn't just a teacher, but he's the one who can cast out demons, who can free the oppressed, who can release the captives. And in the drama of the scene, we see the completeness of this boy's release and his healing. And that leads the crowd to respond with that verse we thought about earlier. They are amazed at the greatness of God. I hope that you can see why when I studied this passage, I was amazed at the amount of revelation that there is to this question of who is Jesus. And Luke is clearly bringing together some threads of his account at this point as he wraps up Jesus' time in Galilee. He outlines something of who Jesus is. He's he's the son of man. He's the son of God, the chosen one. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's the one who brings freedom. He is more than a prophet. He is more than a teacher. He is greater than John the Baptist and Moses and Elijah. In fact, Luke leads us down a cul-de-sac where the only thing we can do is conclude that Jesus is one of a kind. 
He truly is the greatest one who ever was and ever will be. So if that's who Jesus is, it means the passage raises some issues for us. Because if he's the greatest, then what does it mean? What does true greatness actually look like? Because if Jesus is the greatest, then what he does will be what true greatness should look like. And so mixed into this whole passage, this direct revelation of who Jesus is, his titles, his endorsement, his power, there's much about the nature of true greatness and the call on the disciples to follow in that true greatness and therefore a call for us. Jesus is the greatest one, but look at what he says will happen to him. He will suffer many things. He will be rejected. He will be killed and raised up. And he reveals even more if we read from verse 43 to the end of this passage. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears for the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They didn't understand this statement and it was concealed from from them so they would not perceive it. And since they were afraid to ask him about this statement. An argument started amongst them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you all, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, don't hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Now the days were approaching for his ascension and he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The greatest one is going to model true greatness for us. There are two aspects to it. He says in verse 48, the one who is least among you all, this is the one who is great. The least. You've got to be the least. To be the greatest, you've got to be the least. And that follows from the revelation in verse 23, where he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, And follow me. You see, in this kingdom, there's no posturing, there's no grandstanding, there's no boasting, there's no self promotion. The kingdom is all about a life of service offered to the king, following in his footsteps. Do you want to be great? Then deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Become the least. Greatness comes in all shapes and all sizes, but it always has these two aspects, sacrifice or denial of yourself and humility in becoming the least. You see, true greatness is the denial of ourselves for the glorifying of Jesus. And if we just remind ourselves of one of the most dramatic scenes from, from Good Friday, the broken, whipped, beaten, condemned Lord Jesus 
is struggling up that hill carrying his cross. And suddenly the soldiers grab Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd and force him to carry Jesus' cross for him. Jesus continues up the hill towards the place where he will meet his death. Simon follows, carrying the cross. That, in an image, is what Jesus is talking about here. We deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow in the very footsteps of Jesus. True greatness is becoming the least in order to exalt the greatest one. I'd like to give you an example of something which I think is an example of greatness. So I need to provide a bit of context. I'm just going to grab a drink for a minute. So the context is that I'm the eldest of four sons. And for a period of about three years, when I was aged nine to 11, um, my family had no income. We lived in a town in South Wales called Bridgend, uh, where my parents had moved to help lead a church. But uh, they were our finance was really tight because there was no income and uh, my mum didn't work. My dad didn't get paid for for helping to lead this church. Um, and also, and this is mainly for the benefit of younger listeners, uh, a bit of context was this was in the days when supermarkets used to close early on Saturday evening and they wouldn't reopen until Monday morning. I mean, can you imagine? But that did really happen. And uh, anyway, there was a, a couple called Myrion and Elizabeth and uh, they lived in a town called Port Talbot, which was where we'd lived previously. About 25 minute drive from from Bridgend. And on a Saturday evening, they would go to a supermarket and they would buy a carload of food for us as a family. See, this was in the days before food banks and so on, and we would have been in that queue, I'm guessing. But they would go to the supermarket, buy the food, and they would come and deliver it to our house so that we had food to eat for the following week. They had a child of their own. She was a year older than me. Um, and uh, they would buy bread and they would buy cakes. And I remember the donuts that they would, would get, you know, anyway. Uh, but they would, they would then drive to our house and, and drop it off for us. This carload of, they would bring in the bags into our home. That was their Saturday evening, every week, to go to the supermarket, buy food for a family who live a 50-minute round trip away. I'd suggest... That's the kind of greatness that Jesus is talking about here. There's nothing in it for them. They became the least, denied themselves, sacrificed their time, their money, their evening in order to bless and serve a family in need. And you see, that is what Jesus is talking about here. Denying ourselves, sacrificing our own comfort and following him. Why? So that Jesus is magnified, so that he is made big. I found it really interesting in some of the commentary that's happened over the last few days about the the long life of Prince Philip. And a consistent theme that's come through is that of his service. His willingness to play second fiddle is one of the phrases that's been used a few times. Play second fiddle to the queen. And the fact that he never overshadowed her or or that kind of thing. In fact, he committed to her. 73 years they were married. 
And he served alongside her, supporting her, promoting her, pointing towards her. And in a far more profound way, our lives should do that for Jesus. Our lives should promote, should elevate, should point towards Jesus. You see, it's not about our careers, our ambitions, our comforts. It's about denying ourselves, following Jesus, pointing towards him. That's what true greatness is. Playing second fiddle to the greatest one of all. So let me conclude. How does this then tie in with our series theme of the favour, the year of the Lord's favour? Well, if following in the footsteps of Jesus means doing what he did, well, what he did was proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, so we should do that. And I would argue that true greatness is giving our everything for the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favour. No matter the extent, no matter the cost, no matter the difficulty. True greatness will be denying ourselves, becoming the least, following Jesus and proclaiming the good news of the year of the Lord's favour. And so I want to take you back to Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And this very thing which Jesus launched his ministry with is our commission. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Even that first statement is a submission to the Lordship of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Submitting ourselves to the filling, guiding, anointing, leading of the Holy Spirit. And from that base, we then go on to do what Jesus did, preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, bring recovery of sight to the blind, set free those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now, we can't do any of that if we're not living for him. We can't we can't truly release captives or heal the sick, or bind up the brokenhearted, or work for freedom of the oppressed and the poor, without denying ourselves, without being prepared to sacrifice and become the least. We can't proclaim the way of Jesus without ourselves living like him, serving like him, sacrificing like him, loving like him, suffering like him. This work, this service, this proclamation of the year of favour requires you and requires me to decrease so he must increase. And we must remember who this is for. It's for the least among you. Remember how Jesus brought that child and said, the least among you, this is who the kingdom's for. Well, in his opening sermon, you'll remember that it was the foreign enemy that this year of favour was for. It was the foreign widow, that's who this year of favour was for. It was was for those on the edges, the margins, the have-nots, the weak, the poor, the vulnerable. That's who we serve. Why? Because if you receive the least, you receive me. Verse 47. And so I just wonder, what is God stirring in you? What has he been stirring up over these 
weeks as we've looked at the year of the Lord's favour? Where is he prompting you to go and serve? What is he? What sacrifice is he challenging you to lay down, to deny yourself in order to follow him? How is it that you're becoming the least in order to promote him as the greatest? Because that's following in his footsteps. We're going to um, worship now to, to finish off with a, a song of dedication, a song of, of surrender to our Lord. But this is not an easy thing for us to do. It's not an easy thing to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, which is why he says it's going to be tough. But it is necessary if we're truly going to be disciples and lovers of our Lord. So I'm going to pray for us. I'd encourage you actually to stand as a sign of commitment to Jesus. Jesus, we come to you the greatest one, the most magnificent person who has ever graced this earth. And we're astounded at the the multitude of answers that there were in this passage to that key question of who is Jesus. And God, we want to commit our lives to following in your footsteps. And yet we recognise that this is not something we can do in our own strength. This is something that we need your Holy Spirit to help us with. This is something that we need your strength to do. To become the least in order to elevate you. To to be people who deny ourselves, who take up our cross daily and follow in your footsteps. Lord, we want to be that sort of a people. People available and ready to serve you whatever it takes. So would you help us? Would you soften our hearts and open our hearts to be those people? And we want to commit ourselves now as we sing this song of surrender to you. That's our sign of commitment to you that we are serious about this. Amen.